As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we react to the FA Cup fourth round as Manchester City come past their Premier League rivals Arsenal. But what did we learn about these two sides? We'll talk about the brilliance of Brighton after they beat Liverpool, what's going on at Wrexham after their draw with Sheffield United and whether their Hollywood owners actually make a difference to the club, or at least what size of difference. We'll talk about Sean Dyche's arrival at Everton, Anthony Gordon's move to Newcastle United and what exactly Chelsea are doing in the transfer window. This is The Game. Hello, welcome back to the game. I'm Hugh Wizencroft alongside Gregor Robertson, Tom Roddy and Alison Rudd on this Monday morning reflecting on the FA Cup fourth round. Uh, we will get to some of the stories, Brighton beating Liverpool, Wrexham of course. We'll also cover some of the big news in terms of Premier League transfers and managerial changes. But let's start at Friday night at the Etihad. This is a game that I went to slightly disappointed felt like a bit of an anti-climax Manchester City beating Arsenal by a goal to nil thanks to Nathan Ake's goal the two best sides in the country right now didn't really feel like that I have to say on the evening there was kind of I don't know, the atmosphere wasn't really where you wanted it to be but um nor was the football let's be perfectly honest so what did we make of it what did we learn about these two sides as it pertains to the Premier League title race because I think that was the subplot wasn't it well, that's rude to the FA Cup, isn't it, first off? <laughs> Here we are talking on FA Cup weekend, which has produced a little dollop of magic, we have to agree. And the first thing you say is, what does this teach us about the Premier League title? No, I said, what do we learn about these two no, teams? No, you didn't. You mentioned the as title it, race. As it, <laughs> as it will in the future pertain to the title race. Like, show that you were a bit wrong, Hugh, because you thought City would be the team that made all the changes, and I, it was, was Arsenal that mm. made more changes. I think they started with five that you would consider, you know, top choice. And what I felt I learned from the game was that Arteta was caught between wanting to prove he has some depth, that he knows he needs to rotate, that if he's going to win the title, it's going to be exhausting, and you've got to be careful with your resources. But I also felt there was a sort of pull on him that he felt Arsenal's history in the FA Cup, he wanted to take it very seriously and he wanted to prove that his, not entirely second choice team, but that some players who are, are possibly fringe players have what it takes to step up if if they need to in the title race. So I felt that was a narrative that Arsenal were taking it seriously, but clearly taking the title race more seriously and City just do what they always do, which is that they know they have, they had a greater depth of squad than Arsenal and they're at home and that they ought to win and they did just enough. And because of that, because of the logic of life, that's why I think for you it probably lacked atmosphere and passion because it was, it felt like a, a thing they had to go through as opposed to something they embraced. I think most people... Uh coming away from that game. You asked, what, what did what did you learn? Uh, learned that Nathan Aki has a all right right foot, actually. Um, but most people going into that game, I think you're right, Hugh, would have looked at it as, a, as part of the title race. And there are two schools of thought that uh, Arsenal actually are on course to, to do what we didn't think was likely this season. And the other school of thought is that City are now going to make a title charge because we're actually only at the midway point of the season. And the two schools of thought will come away from that game thinking they hadn't learned anything. And the the reason for that is because Guardiola is gradually still chipping away and is probably underrated in the uh in the in the dark arts of mind games and ahead of that I thought it was quite interesting ahead of that game he made the point that 
even though him and Arteta were friends, they there would be moments where they were likely to fall out on the touchline. And I thought that was the beginning of getting into Arteta's head and probably will work. Whereas on the and then, and then on the other side you've got the belief that Arsenal are solely focused on the Premier League. That's what they want. That's what's most important after nineteen years of not winning it and actually picking up a few FA Cups. And now they can have that tunnel vision. So that's a very long way of saying I don't think we learnt very little. <laughs> do you think do you think Pep lied to Arteta? Do you think they had a little chat? Are you going to rest players, mate? We do. <laughs> oh, of course, I rest everybody. <laughs> and then I don't rest everybody. This is the thing, right? The changes. I think a lot of Arsenal fans were thinking that it was a defeat and a win at the same time due to the changes, which Tom Clark, special mention, did call on the last uh, podcast. Because did he tell they, you to say that? A second. Did he tell you? Yeah, he did tell me to say that. Yeah, he did. Because, obviously, they played very, very well. They managed to keep a stronger City side at bay, predominantly. It uh, felt like a 50-50 match, pretty much, okay? Nathan Ake got the goal, but it wasn't like there were loads of clear-cut goal-scoring opportunities for Manchester City in the game, all right? Rob Holding did need to come off, otherwise it would have been 10 men for Arsenal, I'm sure, by the end of the game. But um, they managed to keep their best players in their back pocket and only lose 1-0, which makes them feel like... If their full strength team is out, City's best team's not going to beat them. And it was a massive, uh, even though they lost, I think it was a massive psychological boost for Arsenal. I think we can delve a little bit too deeply into the psychological sort of. If you had it your way, all of these podcasts would be fifteen minutes long. (laughs) 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 You ever saying it? I think I think we're I think we're just we're. That that was a kind of uh, a prefix for what I was going to go on to say. I think Arteta Arteta couldn't win. I think I kind of agree with Tom. It was like. If he'd played his full strength team and it had been like a swashbuckling game then and he'd lost, then it's a blow. It's a real blow. And you're right, it does have ramifications for the for the title race. If he makes changes, you know, does he lose a bit of a bit of the kind of momentum that they built? And as you say, it was a narrow game, fairly kind of tight and, you know, not much in it. So the answer to that is no. So, you know, you're right, you kind of he's out of the FA Cup, but he's not really taking a step backwards and He's not lost anything, but I don't think either way there was, you know, unless unless he really went for it, that was that was the biggest risk, and he was never going to do that. I don't think so. You know, yes, there was a, there was there was clearly huge lots going on in their minds here, and we saw Arteta change the way they played. They kind of they went man to man for swathes of the game, and Guardiola said that was a surprise to him. We were expecting Guardiola to be the one who comes up with these little tweaks. So clearly they they were both thinking about it a lot, but I think it was kind of honours even and onto the Premier League now. The key is, I think, did. Arsenal feel vulnerable afterwards and if you're saying they didn't then it's fine because I think that was, that was the problem with making changes if they, even if they had that excuse and they were outplayed and it was 2 or 3 nil, would that interrupt their sense of we've got this we're sorted and it's interesting that I think we're all agreeing that they wouldn't have come out of that defeat feeling <gasps> wobbly in the league I think the interesting thing is, firstly, that the first match that they play is at the Emirates Stadium. So I think Arsenal take big confidence into a home match. And obviously, if they get a good result in that game, I think the trip to the Etihad becomes easier for them. Had they been the other way around, they've had obviously bad results in the past at the Etihad Stadium. Had it been a poor performance and result at the Etihad, maybe you fear the worst if the second game's at the Emirates Stadium. But um, I think they're just I, like every time I see Arsenal now, I think they're going to win the league. To be honest, I watched that game; they lost the game. Still thought they're going to win the league because Guardiola has said it himself, and I think it was evident here that if they're going to surpass Arsenal, they need to find some extra gears, and they're just not hitting that level. I knew, I had the argument on the radio with Stuart Pearce, to be perfectly honest, because he he is one of those who said to me, like many people, this team is capable of going on that huge run of of winning matches and I'll say again I just don't think they are they just haven't got that level right now I mean you're looking at Guardiola I spoke to him afterwards and asked him you know you've put a strong side out was that due to the respect that you've got for Arsenal and he he basically said well you know Walker was on the bench Cancelo was on the bench Um, was De Bruyne on the bench De Bruyne was on the bench so I think he was basically saying they don't really have a weak side no but, but what he said is if I play all of those players who are on the bench and then we don't get a result, what do you guys say? Well, I switched to the entire team. We didn't get a result, so it's my fault. 
if I play them all, that like you know, and I'm meant to be playing them all because it's rotation. Lots of those players, apart from De Bruyne, but lots of the bench. Bernardo Silva, the like, haven't been involved. Um, Alvarez, I think, came off the bench as well regularly. He should have played those players in this game. And to be honest, you know, before the game, we're sitting there, we're saying Laporte hasn't played much. He'll start. And then we're looking at the back four. We're like, Cal- Cancelo and Walker will be the fullbacks. This is a change team for Manchester City. And Ruben Diaz, who never starts, he should be starting tonight. This is before the team sheet comes out. And we're saying, that's an incredibly strong back four. And he doesn't play that back four. It's like he's got... I, I mean, I don't know what he's thinking at the moment. You know, Rico Lewis is in there. Loads of players that have been playing well for Manchester City. But there is no second gear in that squad. We're talking about the strength of the bench. He doesn't currently believe that those players on the bench are adding that much. Or you would play them against Arsenal, even if you thought Arsenal were going to be full strength. Clearly, they're good enough players to cope with it. So the fact that he didn't... I, I, I see more messages from Pep that there is a lack of belief, intensity from this squad. I asked him afterwards, you know, just over a week ago, we were here for the game against Spurs and afterwards you said, we need more fire, we need more passion. You said that about the players, you said it about the fans. What have you made of the response? You've had two home games since, you beat Wolves, you've beaten Arsenal and he just went, exceptional. And I was like, are you kidding? (laughs) Because you don't believe that. You'd have a more eloquent answer if there was substance to, to that. The one word almost showed me that, okay, he's having me on a little bit. You say that, but I, I remember watching the uh, interviews, the multiple interviews that he did broadcast and written after the Tottenham game and just watching them back and rereading it because it was, that was out of the norm for him. The the one word post-match interview. So you, uh, it, that's his norm, to be honest. He's, he's usually has the appearance of being quite disinterested, to be honest. And... That's why I think as well, this is part of a, a a period of mind games. And, you know, no one knows Arteta really better than him. He knows it's his first time doing this. And I think that was, that post-match against Tottenham was a way of getting into his players. And then ahead of this game was getting into the beginning of getting into Arteta and Arsenal. And that game on uh, February 15th, it's going. This wasn't. This wasn't a blow to Arteta, but it is a dent, and he he will chip away at that now, heading up to that game, and because he knows him better than anyone else. Interesting. Interesting. Do we do we want to say anything positive about Manchester City? They did win the game. You know, it it could be a positive for them mentally, psycho- psychologically. Do you not think that? They're so reliable in the cup competitions, though. You kind of think they must take minimal boost from it. It's just bread and butter stuff for them. It did all feel a little bit subdued. I mean, you were there. You'll yeah. tell us more about it. But, you know, all of it just felt like, I don't know, uh, just uh, the first course. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? That and that, that, as, as Alison said, that might sound a bit disrespectful to the FA Cup, but this is the reality. This is the context that this that these two teams are going head-to-head now for the, for the rest of the season for the Premier League title. And this was the first of three games and it was the least important. Yeah. It's a fact. But also it's disrespectful to the FA Cup because of its importance now. If 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 Arsenal or Man City win the FA Cup, it's just generally not going to be seen as a massive deal. It's the Premier League that's important to them now, right? At least we saw excitement in the FA Cup elsewhere. Yeah, but, but the victory is, by that measure, more important for Manchester City mm. because, in, in my opinion, but if they don't win the Premier League title, if they can win the FA Cup, you salvage a, a big slice of respect I guess of course the Champions League is there as well and if they win that I don't think any of their fans will necessarily care about the Premier League although well, Arteta City fans like, do, do prioritise that Arteta, like Arteta I mean look both the managers I mean I, I I kind of walked away wondering what I'd done to them <laughs> <laughs> it was like I'd really they had a bad smell in their nostrils when I was standing so close to them I was like what have I done what familiar feelings <laughs> in my list of a podcast <laughs> isn't it pretty sure I had a shower this morning no um, Arteta was a man of, of more words, let's call it that. Um, but again, I, you know, he, he basically said, in terms of momentum, which is what I asked him about, well, yeah, we'll pick ourselves back up. Doesn't really derail us at all. Um, I asked him about the changes and he said, well, you know, we demand things from these players in training every day and we expect them to play and they work hard and they deserve to play matches, you know, when the opportunity arises. 
So I thought that was interesting and, and maybe, you know, once again lends itself to the kind of spirit that he's building at Arsenal and all of that kind of rhetoric. But um, I'd say he came across as a nicer guy, if that matters at all, to, <laughs> to either of these two managers. But um, just one piece of history for Bet, which lends itself to what you were just saying, Alison, about um, this being routine, because Bill Edgar's column in The Times... Um, shows that Pep Guardiola's 50th victims in the main domestic cup competitions were Arsenal. This weekend, the Spaniard has won 50 of his 58 FA Cup or League Cup ties since arriving in England in 2016. He has reached that landmark in three fewer ties than any other manager in English football. Can you guess who took 61 games to reach 50 domestic cup wins? Ergie? Nope. How far back we were? Well, it's this century. <laughs> I saw reports that he might return to the club. Oh, Jose Mourinho for a third cool. time. <laughs> Brighton to Liverpool one. This is another non-surprising result, right? I mean, let's start this time because I know Tom Clark's going to be listening by giving credit to Brighton. Okay, is everyone happy now? We can start with the fact that Brighton played very well and won the game. Gregor, do you want to start on Brighton? I mean, happily. They're not standard. And, you know, Matoma, Matoma's goal was a thing of beauty, wasn't it? I think we can all agree. His second touch was sublime. Yeah. Uh, magnificent goal to win the tie. But their energy and their kind of drive is just is remarkable. And this was a bit of a depleted team as well. Obviously, missing Caicedo. I think it's his first game he's missed since Deserby took the, took the hell. Lallana and Col- Colwell as well. And... You know, although this was a game of kind of finer margins, it wasn't the same as the the three nil win uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was still kind of their drive and their kind of intensity and their desire to go to the very end that that got them got them through in this. But another little kind of nugget from Bill's Bill's column, which jumped out at me, uh, was that Brighton have now won their past two games against Liverpool, their past two games against Manchester United, two of their past three against Arsenal, and they're unbeaten in four against Chelsea. Like this is clearly that goes back beyond Deserby, but this yeah. is a club that know how they kind of got got the number, haven't they, of the of the of the the big the big boys mm-hmm. because they take the game to them and they they don't they're not like sitting back and re- playing reactive they're pro they're proactive and they 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 they're confident in their ability and they're kind of their their tactical flex. There were so many players who were tactically flexible. Like Cachero's missing, Pascal Grosk who's been playing right back. Yeah. Who can play number ten comes into midfield yeah. alongside McAllister. Um, you know, Billy Gilmore comes in. They've got a lot of players who are really, really kind of intelligent, I think. And that's what's that's what jumps out at you. That's the, that seems to be the model of player that they recruit. And it means that when there are changes needed or when inevitably their player's gonna be sold and move on. And look it looks, you know, increasingly like Matoma will be the next one who's gonna be Yeah. You know, you know. Desperately craved by some <laughs> by the big, by the top. But I do, the th- I do think now, and we'll talk about Caicedo in a bit. But there is a, a part of me that thinks that Brighton is a football club that maybe doesn't have the money of others, and they've clearly seen a route with their recruitment to success. But how many of the players can you sell before it starts to fall apart? Yeah, you know, that's the thing. So <laughs> it's going to be the inevitable question. But uh, there'll be lulls. Yeah. There all will undoubtedly be lulls because of that, mm. but you've got to back them to be able. You know, they've done it for over a period of time now as well. You know, as I say, I went to Forest Green earlier in the season and saw Matoma and Ferguson playing, and I thought, wow, they're decent. And now later in the season, they're they're tearing, tearing it up in the Premier League. So, you know, I, I think you've got to trust them over a period of time. Yes, if they're selling several players in one go, it's going to be a blow. It's happened to Leicester City, and they've not been able to maintain that kind of yeah. that recruitment cycle. Brighton seem to be doing things a little bit differently. You look at yesterday and all of the all of the issues involved with Caicedo missing the game, uh, Trossard having left this month, um, all of these problems, usually that would be a big psychological blow for most teams going into a big game against a team like Liverpool. But for them, they just seem to move seamlessly over these things. And Mitoma actually... He he sums them up a little bit as a club in terms of everything beyond recruitment, but mainly recruitment because Johnny Northcroft did an interview with Solly March, who's been absolutely excellent at this season, especially under Deserby. But I loved his honesty about Matoma, where he he joins the club, and Solly March says, "I 
actually, I'd never heard of him before he joins the club. And now, as Gregor said, you're likely to get some of Europe's biggest clubs trying to sign him because he just looked excellent. I think it's full goals in six games. He's just, it is, Brighton is a platform in which players just seem to be performing. They do want some respect though. So, you know, when you talk about some of Europe's biggest clubs stealing their players, hold on a moment there. Look where Brighton are in the Premier League, the best league in the world right now. You know, why should their players be leaving? Shouldn't they want to stay? Shouldn't Moises Caicedo want to be involved? And he probably does on one level, but he has an agent who can see that there's big money to be made. The the, the reason, to answer your question, Hugh, about there has to be a lull, what is the impact if this keeps on happening, that big money comes in for their star players, is that Brighton have a high degree of self-awareness. They know exactly that's what's going to happen and they're prepared for it. They have no emotion about it. We apply and the fans apply and neutrals will apply emotion to the way they play because it is very attractive. And I agree, Matoma's goal was a thing of beauty and it was goal of the weekend and maybe maybe one of the goals of the season it was. And it, it was part of a wonderful, energetic performance from that, that player who no one had ever heard of because he was at the university team 18 months ago. I mean, I don't, I don't expect Solly March to keep an eye on <laughs> university players around the world. But the point is, everyone else is emotional and gushing about what they achieve. But the way the club is run is they're constantly making sure they have backup and then a backup and then a backup for every position. So that no matter who is sold, no matter how surprising the bid or the surprise of the name that goes... They already have in the system three names that they feel can slot in to take the place of the person who's left. And so far it has worked. There's been, if anything, they've grown in stature as they've lost players. That's, and it's, it might, again, it, it provokes an emotional response, but it's pure good business from their side of things. Uh, as it stands, Brighton have rejected a second bid from Arsenal, £65 million plus £5 million in add-ons for Moises Caicedo. This is a bit of silly season with the Instagram posts and the, you know, you guys should respect why I want to take this opportunity from Caicedo towards the Brighton fans. And then Brighton saying, we don't want you back at the training ground until um, until the end of the transfer window and stuff like that. I do think, come on. I mean, I, I love Brighton's stance because I have spoken to people at Brighton from a while ago about Caicedo. They think he's going to be basically a super player worth in excess of 100 million pounds within the next sort of 18 months so for them this is massively undervalued and it's also a player of course that they still want in their team and still need in their team so at this point they just don't want to sell and it's just it's an interesting stance an important stance i think for setting the tone of the future of the club that they don't just you know all right we'll bite your hand off for every single player that's got ex- extremely high potential Saw Caicedo at the World Cup and thought he was brilliant. Brilliant. What's the game against Senegal, I think? But just a standout player on the pitch. So One thing Brighton have to be, and, and this is why I agree, I admire their approach, is what they don't want to create is an environment where you see a player leave because he goes on a bit of a sulk. They don't want players to start doing that. They want If, the, if they don't go, they want them to stay committed. So Trossard goes and, you know, it's almost like the club thought, well, if you're not going to train properly... Okay, we'd rather you weren't here. You don't want someone copying that and thinking, "Oh, well, I'll get my move if I if I say I'm not going to train properly." Mm. You've got to nip that in the bud straight away. And the way to do that is to say no to the big first big bit that comes yeah. in. It sets a precedent, doesn't it? And the, it, I thought actually the most significant thing coming out of the club was the interview that Kai Sado did on the club channels three days, I think it was, before his uh, his. Instagram post saying essentially in the interview saying I, I'm here to stay uh, brilliant club, respecting it uh, they're giving me an opportunity all of this and then how his mind has changed in that amount of time was incredible but I say incredible it's it, it, it's a bit sort of tongue in cheek, his mind did not change it was clearly in that way and, and as Ali said there are influential voices in his ear which Brighton are fully aware of but they've they have gone about it the right way, and they are they are determined not to sell him. the The thing is, though, it's just another one. In after Ben White, fifty million pounds, Cucurella, sixty three million pounds, Caicedo, 
if it goes to 80, 80 million pounds, they they don't need to sell right now. But it, in this day and age, it, it doesn't matter because you end up in that situation. So Ali, spot on, you've, you've actually got to deal with that. Stopping players from, you know, like an Anthony Gordon situation, push, pushing your way out. Getting an almost silly fee is almost, you know, you're still winning. <laughs> you know, even if the player is, is kicking up a fuss and you're worried about their kind of, you know, the environment and now that's upset. If you hold firm, you hold firm and you get what would be a ridiculous fee, I think. And all those fees have been ridiculous. Let's be honest. Cucurella, 63 million. I mean, Ben White has been a good player for Arsenal, but still, when he's, when they bought him for 50 million, you thought, what? Mm. And I think the same about, about Caicedo. Yes, he's got a good future, but that is an incredible sum of money. And I know this is the way that the Premier League's going, and I know particularly this, you know, since Chelsea have, have come into the equation, the, the, the landscape has, has changed a little bit um, under the new ownership. But if they hold out and they hold out and they get a silly fee again, you know, it's another kind of, I think they've won again. Alison, a question for you. Can things get any worse for Liverpool? <laughs> well... You ask this every week now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was an improvement on the league defeat to Brighton. <laughs> and then I'm aware as I say that, it's as if I'm talking about a club from League One who's mid-table and fallen off a bit. I, the worrying thing is it it's as though you're conditioned to thinking, well, if something's gone so badly wrong, that has to be the adrenaline kick the club needs, the manager needs, the players need to make them realise, you know, we have to just give it extra, whatever percent is needed. But each time there's a setback, it doesn't have that effect. It's, it's, you get a bit of a chug chug like a car trying to start. There's a chug chug and the hope that it's going to go vroom vroom and it, it doesn't quite manage to do it. And I, can't believe knowing what we know about Klopp and he's he's now got what you call a long history in the Premier League he's he will be trying his hardest there'll be no lack of willingness to try and see accept the negatives and make them right but it's there's a malaise there I, I said a couple of weeks ago you asked me about Liverpool and I said it's broken and I think it is broken because there was a lot if you wanted to be Kind's not the right word. We wanted to be positive. There were there were things that weren't bad about Liverpool, but the point is, in the bigger picture, it wasn't as good as Liverpool ought to be, because there were still great players on the pitch, and a lot of those players did great things last season. And how can the drop off be so huge? But there were little moments all the way through where my heart sank. Like Fabino's face when he thought he was going to get... So I actually thought he might just walk before the red card was shown. He looked so like... And it was not It was not the face of someone who thinks, oh, I hope I haven't hurt somebody. I, I would never want to do that. It was the face of someone who thinks, oh, everything's unravelling. I can't even make a tackle anymore. It's like, oh, it's another thing. Nothing's going right today. And I also think, isn't there something slightly wrong with the club when I, as a supporter... When James Milner comes on, my heart lifts. Hooray! Millie's coming on, and I—it it shouldn't. That shouldn't be the case. That it, he's someone who should be, you know, on his way out. Uh, had has peaked already, and yet I think. Uh, and why? So why did I? Why did my heart flutter when he came on? It's because I know, no matter what, he will. He manages to rise above all the negatives, and he did play well. First thing he did was provide a really nice cross. He he somehow has that guts and determination and experience and passion. And I I don't I'm not saying the other players aren't capable of having it, but it's as though it's it, there's they've run out of the reserves of it. And that's something as a manager you can't give players you can't give them that belief in the system and recreate the magic that happened. It's they're 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 a balloon that's going. <laughs> I think they, I think if it were to be a ninety-minute match, the Liverpool players can't wait for the final whistle. This season needs to be out of the way already. I think Klopp sounds like a broken record too. He, he, every time he comes on afterwards, he says talks about the goals they can see and say that's impossible, can't happen. Uh, that's not allowed. Like, well, I'm sorry, 
he said that was impossible last week and it's happening again and again and again he's he kind of he seems lost like he, he's out of ideas and he's just so dismayed with what he's seeing and it's such a drop off and from what Liverpool have been not clear they're still missing some players through injury uh, but just the drop off in performance from, from some of it is kind of key lieutenants and some of them some of them have been left on the bench now left out of you know, Jordan Henderson's nowhere yeah. to be seen anymore Um it's really alarming. And he's, he's talking about a rebuild. Well, it is a rebuild already. It's a rebuild already, given the age and profile of the players that Liverpool have bought in key positions. Yeah, the rebuild's already underway. Yeah. So, this... so I, again, I'm not massively surprised by what's going on at the moment, but um, the performances are still kind of subpar. Maybe we're not expecting Liverpool to be at the same high level, but it's still a half-decent team. The performances are just very, very poor. I slightly disagree, Gregor, in the... I didn't think he was a broken record. I actually listened to him after that game and I know he was, wasn't was particularly well. He had that no. croaky voice. Yeah. But it also, they just didn't seem to be, there was almost like a defeatist element to the tone of which he was talking. Sometimes the the words are uh, similar, but just the, the tone in way, the way he was delivering it. And it felt like there was a, not division in the way that the players aren't, particularly playing for him I don't mean that at all but just a, a division in the way they're thinking or the way they're expressing thoughts because Andrew Robertson is is probably the most <laughs> one of the most sort of passionate and um and uh, honest speakers in interviews and he w- he was saying it just it's they were meant to have that reset which Klopp has spoken about and that never that never happened and and as Alison said you know you get James Milner come on the pitch and he's he is he sums up Liverpool a little bit this season in the irritation <laughs> that you see from his performance and his his attitude it, it does feel like a club that's pulling in different directions a little bit at the moment I think they'll probably end up finishing like fifth and having a strong end to the season once they probably get knocked out of the Champions League by Real Madrid because there's fatigue and I think that has been a big element no one really wants to address it because it seems like such an excuse but it's the way that they've played football over the last four years coupled with the fact that last season they played in every single match that they possibly could have there's mental and physical fatigue at the football club to keep up those high standards and um, the, it's just a huge lull at the moment but actually I think look, when they get to the point that they're playing once a week and many of the teams that they play against you know, would have probably played midweek throughout the end of the season they'll be fine and more time on the training ground and just a bit more time with the masseuse and a bit more time with the family and a bit more time to recharge and they'll start next season in a very good place I imagine um, because I can't see it going any other way there's too many good players even though they do need to, to do something particularly midfield recruitment in the summer and there's an exceptional coach there Great is that, that going to be on your list of things that Everton needs to do a bit more time time on the training ground a bit more time with the masseuse <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean though where I'm like they need they need to get into recovery mode and one game a week is probably going to be for the last couple of months of the season where they're at and they'll be alright with that and um, it will probably be a, if, in many regards a long build up to next season where you'll probably get the opportunity to you know, just establish the likes of Gakpo and, and Darwin Nunez a little bit more and spend some more time with them on the training ground because it's been another intense period. You know, Andrew Robson was talking about, oh, we wanted to sort of bounce back after the World Cup. and But then you look at the number of games, you look at how often they've played as a, you know, it's incredibly tough if you're not playing well to have that winning consistency and you're playing every two, three days. So, you know, I know it wasn't this week, but it's good opposition that they played this weekend you know had they played lower league opposition they'd probably win 5-0 the point is they played a very very good football team right now lost 2-1 in the 95th minute and everyone's you know talking about what a crisis it is but they will improve I've got faith okay alright just very very quickly because we've got to talk about it Joe Gomez turning his back for the goal for the winner 95th minute what's he playing at Impossible. Can't have <laughs> Not allowed. Exactly. You're going to bang on. So take it back. <laughs> right, let's move on to uh, another one of the big stories in the FA Cup this weekend. Uh, Wrexham 3, Sheffield United 3. John Egan scoring a stoppage time goal to rescue United against a non-league side, of course, Wrexham. It was a great tie. The National League leaders against the team second in the championship. And we saw plenty of pictures, plenty of interviews, 
plenty of social media posts about Wrexham's co-owner who was in the building, the Hollywood star actor Ryan Reynolds, uh, watching his side's first fourth round appearance since 1997. I won't describe it as heartbreak for Wrexham because they're still in the cup. They weren't knocked out. And look, it gives us another good episode of that Disney series, <laughs> right? Doesn't it? Because um, one of the interesting things that I saw, I, I, I went to Wrexham's social media and I looked at some of their social media posts. One of them wasn't very... It, it, a lot of angry Sheffield United fans because they described uh, Sheffield United as Sheffield, um, <laughs> which Sheffield FC then retweeted and said, it's not us. And then actually you had a lot of those hardcore Wrexham fans saying, come on guys, we've got to get the opposition's name right. It's Sheffield United, you know, show a bit of respect for football in in, in Britain. And then of course you had all the Sheffield United fans who were outraged that they'd been called Sheffield. But in amongst it, there were sort of dozens of posts from people watching Wrexham around the world, which I found massively interesting. Here I am in LA watching the game. Or here I am in Asia. It was it was re quite remarkable, really. Obviously, it's a non-league football club with all these fans all over the world. And then the question mark is, or rather, the question is, is it a fairy tale? You know, can we can we get drawn into the story? Would an incredible FA Cup run for Wrexham hold that kind of sentiment? I'm not really coming around to this idea, but I was we really, have to frame it. I was reading Martin Samuel in the Times. He's been talking about it. It's an interesting story. He thinks that we can, we can believe in these owners. You know, there doesn't need to be naysayers. They might be Hollywood actors, but they're doing something special for the football club, special in the community, and we can gravitate towards that at least. I was at this game, and the atmosphere was absolutely rocking. It was brilliant. Wrexham would have deserved to go through because Paul Mullen ran all over Sheffield United's defence in the first half and they just absolutely bombarded the box in the second half with Bentos' long throw in and they were so close, so so close to, to pulling off the, the shock. Not the fairy tale. And I know everyone, like there is this kind of, like I even used the Hollywood blockbuster in my intro. It's, <laughs> you're drawn to it, you have to do it. You feel compelled to do it because Ryan Reynolds is watching the stand. But it doesn't have to be seen as a fairy tale. What you, what is undeniable is the uplift and the, the way that the club has been energised by the investment and the attention and the enthusiasm of these two guys. That's undeniable. And to be honest, like watching the watching Ryan Reynolds' interview before the game with with Gary Lineker, to me there was something quite there's something quite endearing about watching someone experience that sense of discovery about something that we've, you know, we happen to have loved our entire life. You know what I mean? This is all very new for him. He tweeted afterwards that this is the most, that was the most exciting thing I've ever seen, ever in capital letters. Like, he's clearly, a, he's clearly, a good actor. Yes, he's an actor. I knew he was, yeah. <laughs> I knew he, a predictable meet. <laughs> what they made me for. And, uh, look, it is true. It is true. And it, maybe he is acting. But I don't, you know, personally, my, my inclination is to say that he's not. It's like he's there with his, He's his daughter, he's there with like family and friends. And because we love football and we you know, we know about the passion and the sort of emotions it can it can inspire, like why would he not appeal those things? Yes, it's an investment. Yes, it's a it looks to me a never more sort of inspired investment too, because as I say, it's about telling a story. And as I said I've said in this conversation after the beat Coventry, there are far worse reasons for people buying football clubs than to tell a story. And it's a good story. Mm. And the ultim ultimately, so the last thing is that while that story has been told, the uplift, the energy, the the change in the actual fabric of Wrexham Football Club, AFC, sorry, is real. And it'll be lasting. So even if, as I know you're going to come on to say, at some point they may sell up, even when you said this is a multi-decade investment, at some point, of course, the club will change hands. But it will be a better a better business, a better, if you want to term, term it as that, a better, you know, a better institution. Mm. <laughs> the, the fabric of Wrexham will be in a better place and I'm sure they'll be in a higher league as well. Yeah, I, uh, it was it was a bit cliche bingo, cliche FA Cup bingo, wasn't it, when Ryan Reynolds <laughs> was talking. Um, but you could, from that interview, you could sort of, as you said, Gregor, it's the enthusiasm that came out of it and you could, you could hear the conversations he'd had with locals and... 
about the competition, about the history, it's the magic of the FA Cup, all of that. And I actually, when I first heard of their investment in it and how it had been inspired by uh, the Netflix documentary on Sunderland, Sunderland Till I Die, it didn't really sit that easy with me because I thought this is meant to be... Sunderland Till I Die was absolutely fascinating. I think the the best documentary series on a football club of, of many there are in the last few years but because it was the it, it it was the real gritty story of a club and also one of 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 pain a lot of pain this is pretty much a positive one at Wrexham but just be pain yes yeah but this is essentially this is meant to be it's a journey and it's meant to be a positive journey and as I say, that was my initial thoughts on it. But actually, whether they are, whether they sell the club in five years' time, in ten years' time, it is being used as a vehicle for a story, not for washing any reputation or or anything like that. And when they do come to sell the club, it seems it's not going to be. You're going to have the cop as a stand, which hasn't been, which is was one of the points Martin makes in his column. It's been not been used since two thousand and eight for safety reasons, and but when they do come to sell the sell it, that stand is going to be, I think five thousand five hundred mm-hmm. seat to stand with hospitality and all these things that make it more sus- self sustainable. So actually, when they do come to sell the club, whenever that may be, it will be in a better position than they took it on. Which is that not the conversation that we have? about most football club owners. Increasingly, it just looks so astute. The starting point was, oh, let's make a film, a series. Who do we make a series about? And the way they identified Wrexham was, I mean, they're <laughs> it, it's just so perfect. They wanted a one club town. They wanted a wide catchment area. They wanted that, that means room for growth. They wanted passion, history. If Ryan Reynolds mentions it's the oldest ground in the world, <laughs> again, ah, he loves that stat. And they wanted, they, well, they they wanted those things, and they wanted to know that it it it's some it's a club that mass, matters to the community. A lot of businesses in Wrexham would go bust if the club didn't exist. It's a massive source of income, and if the city grows. It will be because of the club, and that's an amazing economic factor alone. Take away romance from it all, so it was all the all the sort of ingredients they looked for seem seem a bit sort of you know it's, you know where's where's the romance in that? It's it's a, it's a business model, but they because they've got it right, it has created romance out of that because everyone can everyone knows it's true that they do have history, Wrexham, and that's, it matters so much to the local community, and there is passion there. But can we just say, don't they play great football? I mean, that was it's the golf in position in the league. Poof! I mean, it wasn't so really places, there. Yeah. It wasn't there. There was they were playing. What I was most impressed with was the decision making of the players. There were so many moments when you thought, "Are oh, they going to hoof it now? Oh, they're going to try that." They didn't. They, their decision making was almost spot on each time. They're so grown up as players. And it was attractive to watch. It was a great, great game. I think it's the most fun cup tie I've seen for quite a number of years, actually. And also the way they responded to probably the worst opening 10 minutes that they could ever have envisaged. Went behind after 63 seconds and they lost two of their back four to injury in the opening 10 minutes. And Bill Parkinson said after, was like, that, you know, that's probably the thing I'm most proud about. We could have gone, we could have lost four or five nil. A lot of teams would have done after that. But they, they, they just fought right back. And as I say, Mullen just, he's got so much energy, run, ran all over them. And they're really aggressive on the front foot and the crowd get behind them. And ultimately, we we can sit here in the studio and have this conversation about Wrexham and what it means. But what it means, you know, who, what, what, what Wrexham matters most to is the fans, is the people in that area. And there's now 10,000 of them. People can't get a ticket. Mm. This is this is hugely, what is football about? It's about Community relationships, entertainment, excitement, uh, hope—all these things—and pain, as was just referenced. Like there's going to be pain. What what of those things have of these two guys not ticked? 
already mm. for Wrexham fans. So look, ultimately they are delighted that, the, that that these two guys are here, and I think any sort of perception of there being a risk in the future, one day in the future, they they know the club will be in a better place by then, and they'll had one hell of a ride in the process. What what at what stage do you think they have to sell? Because they they're not rich enough to fund a Premier League club, but will. Could they keep funding it to the championship? They might just get one of their even richer friends to to help out. They might seek additional investment. I think they've been open about that too. When it gets when it gets to a point where they need additional investment, who's not going to want to jump on board this this uh, gravy train? Whoa, whoa, whoa! It's not a gravy train. The National League. They're, they won't be in the National League. <laughs> they're 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 oh, okay, sorry. Once the, the series, the EFL is not is not a gravy train either. The Premier League's the only gravy train in England. Yeah, well, they get in the Championship and they're one step away from the Premier League. I'm sure they will have no trouble in attracting outside investment. You think they'll get that far? I think there's every chance. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things about them being such a good football team is they've got a manager who, you know, last job was a lot higher in the football pyramid. They have got a lot of players whose last jobs, if you like, were quite a bit higher. Right, some from League Two, but many from League One. Some who've come up the pyramid to play for them as well, so I won't take that away from their recruitment completely. But you'd expect them to be a strong team. But actually, the reason I bring it all up still goes into something that I found quite interesting, the build-up to the, the last round of the FA Cup and this round as well, that they feel there's more pressure on their games in the National League than their FA Cup games, and they're able to enjoy the FA Cup games more because it is so much about promotion for Wrexham. So they're actually going out there in front of their fans enjoying it playing football you know the, it's almost like a release for them and that's a strange thing for us to be saying about a national league side because usually the fa cup is it means so much i mean it, if you get to the next round it could fund the club for however many years you know they are not in that position there is not high pressure on them doing well in the fa cup or creating that magic all right there is high pressure but it's just higher pressure when it comes to their matches in the national league where promotion is essential for them and it's absurd that there's one promotion place yeah. they're tied on 65 points for north county like they're both going to be well in excess of 100 points this year and one of them is going to be disappointed and have to go into the playoffs. So, <laughs> you know, as much as we're talking about this rise, this inevitable rise, it's, there's been so many clubs over the years who've had probably just as much money ploughed into yeah. them and have spent years trying to get out of this league. So it could be a difficult first. This is the most, probably the hardest step for them. This is more of an observation than, than any uh, criticism or anything, but it's interesting how we observe... Wrexham, and I think it is generally through a positive prism. Whereas, as you just said, Hugh, they've they have invested in players from leagues above them. They have invested a lot of money, and I think generally, you look at Salford City, and it's it's quite. Uh, I think the narrative is more negative. This the this group of the the class of ninety two have come in and. They have put all this money into a club and it's not fair on other teams in that division. That's not actually what we've done with Wrexham. We haven't viewed it in that way because of the story being told and the people who are involved. It's because it's Hollywood. Mm. No, it's because it's it's it's, it's, it matters to more people. No. Salford were, a, were a, a, like a... I don't, it's, I don't want to be disrespectful, but they were a step up from a parkside. No, but I don't think... And Wrexham... they're trying to turn them into something that they never were. Wrexham are a club with history and a huge fan base okay. and a huge potential fan base so there is something more sort of natural in our minds about right. seeing them progress yeah, I see what you're saying that's what you're saying plus it's not just like a, like you know a plaything of former footballers no it's a plaything of Hollywood actors yeah but it be- to the benefit <laughs> to the benefit of a lot more people yeah it's just okay. their plaything no I know but I, look I just think it's generally football tribalism the reason that we see the, the Salford maybe uh, yeah, class of 92, the Manchester United class of 92 with Salford City in, in that prism, I think. But anyway, that's the FA Cup, um, I guess, discussed in full as much as we could. Um, be interesting to see how far Wrexham go. And we'll be talking about them being in Europe next year if they can go all the way. But there you go. That would be the Hollywood fairy tale ending. Uh, up next, we're going to kind of round off some of the other big stories in football. So stay with us. We'll be back after this. 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Okay, let's get an update on Everton next. Um, Sean Dyche, as we're speaking here on Monday morning, yet to be confirmed as the new Everton boss, but Paul Joyce in the Times uh, has been reporting that he was finalising negotiations at the end of last week. That, of course after Marcelo Bielsa's proposal to work behind the scenes and then take over in the summer was kind of overlooked by the club. I think they need an immediate impact given their Premier League uh, precarious position. But anyway, Sean Dyche agreeing to lead the club's battle to stay in the top flight, preparing for a return to management for the first time since he was sacked by Burnley last April. Um, He's held talks with Everton's hierarchy in London on Thursday. His appointment expected to be confirmed very, very soon. He'll receive backing in the transfer market, we're told, with at least two signings targeted before the window closes 11pm on Tuesday. It was interesting, our very own Tony Cascarino writing about why he feels Dyche is the perfect fit at Goodison Park. You can also read Paul Joyce discussing what Dyche needs to do in his key priorities as soon as he arrives at the club. And that's where I wanted to go, really. What does Sean Dyche need to do straight away to get the best out of this Everton team? organise them and that's why if he's appointed he will be appointed he's not scared of doing unsexy stuff or unpopular stuff if he thinks the team need to be incredibly defensive um, they bank bank it up just play on the counter not worry about how pretty it is how expansive it is if he comes in and decides that's the only way to stay up he will do it and um, I'm, I'm not saying Lampard wasn't capable of tactically working that out but I think Lampard was a little bit swayed by other factors like the need to show that he his team could play nice football at this stage in proceedings they just need someone who doesn't care what anybody else thinks at all and comes in and does what's required and I'm if if I mean it's kind of just sums up Everton that it's not been um everyone knows it but it's not been announced and what 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 are they playing at are they hoping that's I don't know, what are they playing at? Are they hoping that some god's going, that Pep Guardiola's going to say, I've always loved Goodison? I mean, I don't know what they're waiting for. Well, you know somebody else had to be his assistant. Yeah. <laughs> you will get the contract signed before you announce it. Well, yeah, but, but it doesn't normally... The, the leak of information and the confirmation are not normally this... This far apart. It was the same with Lampard's exit, wasn't it? The, Everyone the, knows yeah. before it's known. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's bizarre. But uh, I, I actually... I think Daesh really, really suits the club and even and especially the situation they find themselves in now in terms of real financial difficulty, having to work with very little means and in, inspiring a, a group of players to perform beyond those means. The, the problem is is not Daesh, it's, it's something we've spoken about many times before before the problem is not the man in the in the dugout and the fact that he was up against Marcelo Bielsa I saw Davide Angelotti being linked to this job and I don't know if you could get three in terms of profile more different candidates for a job and that would worry me if I was Sean Dyche because it's the 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 guy who walked out of the London Stadium saying it's not me making the decision to to, to sack Frank Lampard isn't is choosing between those three. It, sh- it shows that they don't know what they think they even think they need. I think Sean Deitch suits the the club that Everton are, but not the club that Everton want to be. And that's fine. Like it's he's a manager who will have a good chance of keeping them up, and. 
he would deserve the opportunity to build from there. But Everton want to be something more than that, and they've been sold that vision too. There's a new stadium, obviously. They spent a huge sum of money really badly, and I think they want to. They think that they deserve to be competing with, you know, to get in Europe. They can't and think that now. They can't be thinking. They can have that broader kind of view of the of Everton as a football club. Absolutely. Yeah, they've had that for for a number of years, particularly since Mashiri. It's not going to happen Mashiri. under this ownership, is it? I mean, it can't happen under this ownership now. They have to sell the club. It looks that way. I did. I did a tour of the, their offices in the Liver Building. Oh, this was a while ago, maybe five or six years ago. It's very swish, and the whole vibe. Everyone you speak to, it's all about being an elite football club. I think with the reality and the. You know, and there's photographs of the what the new stadium will look like and their values. Is it, they have a, a sense of grandeur. They believe they can be the voice of Merseyside and beyond, perhaps. There, there is this ego there, actually. And I think they're probably, as a board, are finding it very difficult to acknowledge what's happening on the pitch with what their vision of what the club should be in terms of its stature. And that is reflected in what Tom said about them not even being sure about where to go with the manager because they're they're thinking about what's needed now, but also about what they want the world to see and what they want to look like in a couple of seasons' time. But if they're sensible, they should be very glad that Dyche is prepared to take them on, actually. Now, finally, if what, what we're asking, does, does Dyche need? He needs a striker really badly. There's just Sol Gordon, who's the joint top scorer with the Maric. The uh, the Marie gave on four goals, and uh, there's a, a bit in Paul Joyce's piece that kind of jumped out at me. They're, they've just been desperate for Dominic Calvert Lewin to stay fit. And he scored 29 goals in 60 games for Ancelotti. What a difference that is! And he's now scored six in 29 games. He's only been fit for 29 games since Ancelotti's left, so they can't rely on him. And mm. they've just you know they're going to receive 40 million pounds for for Gordon. He needs some of that. He needs some of that. Or else I think they're down. It doesn't matter. If you can't score goals, you're down. You know, you'll, you'll show up the defence. Who do they even get? A couple of days left in the transfer window. I mean, I'm sure there'll be bodies available, but they need a bit of quality. They need someone to, maybe as a focal point, not even necessarily the goals themselves, but someone that they can play off in a forward position because they... They don't even have the creativity that, that uh, Calvert-Loon had around them in that, that period. Yeah. Amos Rodriguez, uh, Lucas Dina even left back with Bomber on. They just lost Gordon. Mm. Like... Richarlison. Yeah. Look, they're, they're really, really, really struggling for goals. They need to do something about that or whatever, you know, Deitch will organise them, he'll make them hard to beat. You can't score goals, you're doomed. Anthony Gordon, you mentioned, uh, has gone to Newcastle United for around £45 million. Pounds. I mean, we're talking about Moises Caicedo and crazy fees. What do you think about Gordon's move to Newcastle? Good for the club? Good for the player? Yes, to both. Look, I think most transfer fees are mental these days. To be honest with you, when it was talking, you know, there was talking even they were talking even you know higher sums when Chelsea were sniffing around in the in the summer. This is a bit more reasonable, but I think he scored seven goals in seventy something games. I read he's got spirit. And he's got yeah. drive, and he's got real potential, but he's not done much yet. And to to spend forty five million pound on a player who's not done a great deal is is something that you know only new, only clubs like Newcastle can do now. It's one of those where you look at the profile of some of the players that Newcastle have, and you think, why don't they want Anthony Gordon? But if you look at what Eddie Howe's got from Miguel Almiron, but a player that doesn't really stop Almiron, he's just yeah. managed to get the added quality. But he's got the work rate throughout his squad, and it shows in the defensive record Absolutely. because they defend as a team rather than just the back four or maybe back five. And then you look at someone like Joe Linton again, who was a laughing stock really when he played up front, but goes into a midfield area who doesn't really stop, a quite a relentless player. And you look through the squad and you think, what does Eddie Howe want? And he he wants that. You know, he's been talking about um, Anthony Gordon's versatility and why he wants him in the team. But it is he's got pace, he's got energy. He's got the ability to play in multiple positions. He's young. He's English, you know. And again, being homegrown, a club that wants to maybe you know pack out that squad with with stars from around the world over the next couple of years is also an element in, into why he was probably worth it for Newcastle United. I, th- I think he really. I agree with all the above. Um, I think he really fits the profile of the club. And of course, part of the 
kind of galling at the the price tag is because of the also because of the form he's in he's been in recently. But I think that's a Newcastle have faith that that is his head being turned by the opportunity to go elsewhere, which was Chelsea in the summer and now Newcastle. And he's actually the player of last season when he was by far and away Everton's best player and performed well under Lampard and was was encouraged by Lampard in the same way I think Eddie Howe will. But I think it's a it, it's a it's a smart it's a smart signing. And I remember speaking I remember speaking to him at Chesterfield, um, probably September time. England under twenty ones were playing, and he'd been as he was quite often one of the standout players. And he was still talking about a late run for the World Cup squad, and that kind of sums up his personality, which is a, a an uber confidence in his ability, which is what you need in football. And you think in a position like that, where the England senior squad is so well stocked, so Eddie Howe has a very confident, very capable, um, determined, de- determined, yeah, absolutely determined player on his hands. What's What's not to like? A new chapter, says Anthony Gordon on his social media, going to Newcastle United. Spoke about his love, though, of Everton. Who knows, he might be back. Um, but a new chapter, too, for Everton under Dyche. I just wanted to ask you all if you think he does have what it takes to keep Everton in the Premier League. Do you think it will happen, Alison? I think he's given them their best chance. I'm, it'll be tight. Tom? Uh... Yeah, I think he will. But I'm trying looking at the table right now and trying to work out the other team that goes <laughs> yeah, down. And that's the difficult part, yeah. who goes instead. So I don't know, but I, I feel encouraged by his appointment. Gregor? Yeah, I agree with Tom. Like, how, who, who do you pick that falls into the... Yeah, I have to say, like as much as we're gushing about, we have been gushing about Nottingham Forest sort of improvement, that again, I've, I had fears about them in the transfer market and I'm starting to see them sort of come true. I think they're saying that if they change John Joe Shelby will be the 25th player yeah it's crazy promotion. and yet they're playing quite it well it could upset the apple cart again and who knows so oh, you think these transfers might lead to them having their form reversed and going back to playing quite poorly absolutely okay I'm not saying it's going to happen I'm saying that yeah, there's something to keep possible. an eye on yeah. the rest of the transfer window it's possible but it's so hard to pick who's going to drop in instead of them so I think unless and I also keep coming back to the the struggle for goals I think I think everyone might go down still All right, very finally on the podcast today, just because Tom Roddy is here and it's the transfer window and it's a story that you're working on. What on earth is going on with Chelsea, who have signed more players probably now than the Nottingham Forest? Uh, 19-year-old Leon left back Malo Gusto, £30.7 million signed at the weekend. And it looks like they're trying to get Enzo Fernandez from Benfica. The release clause, I think, somewhere around €120 million. Euros. Is there truth in that? Yeah, yeah, no, there is. I mean, there was never, it was quite interesting because the things that were said publicly around this deal uh, didn't quite reflect what was going on behind the scenes in that Roger Schmidt, the, the Benfica manager, on the very day that he said this deal is dead, he's not going anywhere. The Benfica board has been very split over this and members of the board were still encouraging talks and negotiations with Chelsea over Enzo Fernandez, and even since the beginning of the window, this was looked as a possible or li- even likely summer deal because of that release clause, because of how much it was going to cost Chelsea. But because UEFA are looking or, and have looked at the way in the loophole that Chelsea have found in these massively long-term contracts that then spread the cost and and kind of cook the books for once a better phrase for how things appear. Um, in terms of FFP. In rather, terms of FFP. Rather than their taxing or accounting, Absolutely. just to be clear. Yeah. Thank you very much, Hugh. <laughs> um, <laughs> banned. <laughs> for that reason, uh, as Martin Ziegler uh, broke in the Times, he because of that, I think that has stepped up the need for them to get this deal done in this window rather than the summer but it's still it's still a very tricky one and um 
I'm still not entirely sure it'll happen. What will be interesting is who they name in the Champions League squad. Do you just put your hand in a lucky dip? But I just think it's remarkable. You know, even the Premier League squads from here on out, you know, there's quite a few teams in the Premier League who over the next couple of days surely want to let some players go. Otherwise, we're going to see a bit like we saw, and it was at Chelsea this time last year, you know, a number of players of high quality not in their Premier League squad for the second half of the season. You just, It just grates me. I don't want to see good players in the world of football anywhere in the world not playing, not even at clubs, or, you know, not even on the bench, you know, not with the ability to go out on a Saturday. That's just not good for the sport. You know, the best players in the world should play somewhere. Doesn't have to be in the Premier League, but just lace the boots up on a Saturday or Sunday and get out there. But that's going to happen more and more now as well because because of the restrictions on loan deals, getting players out, because of the financial power of the Premier League compared to other leagues, it's going to take clubs to have to say, no, we'll, we'll take the hit on this and, and sell for a ridiculously low sum. If we're talking about the Premier League's power as well, as there are more striking signing than potentially Weston McKinney to from Juventus to Leeds United. Yeah, yeah. I'm I mean, it's extraordinary. Like this it's underlines yeah. exactly what you've just said, that the Premier League is the Super League. But one of the one of the interesting things about those moves is the desire of the players to make yeah. the move and the way that they talk about moving from a giant of European football to a relegation battle in the Premier League, like it's an incredible opportunity mm-hmm. for them. And that shows you that this is once again the, the Super League if you like in terms of European football um, but an interesting thing funny you mentioned that because at the weekend I was at Middlesbrough but I was talking about loan signings and I was saying to one of my colleagues there and I was with Michael Brown former, the former Spurs midfielder but I was talking about the fact that I think there needs to be a couple of days at the end of the transfer window maybe just the middle transfer window for the second part of the season where almost players that have been left out of the, the Premier League not, not a draft, not a draft necessarily, but basically it says, look, you know, for whoever it is, let's use Chelsea as an example. You are going to be playing a hundred percent of player X's salary, and they don't have the ability to play for you. So here is a list, and it's tiered, so it's like you know, people on a certain salary. If you want this player on loan, this is the amount of their salary that you have to pay, but you you almost you almost have access to it, not like a draft, but you you basically say to the clubs, look. You know, these are the players that we want. A bit like a mini transfer window for a couple of days. And there's a sliding scale down to the youngsters at the bottom where a League Two side, a National League side can say, well, look, they're not going to play second half of the Premier League season. They might be 20, 19, 20 years old, but we'll pay them two grand a week. We need a player in at the moment. And they should just be allowed to go. And I think even for youngsters, it might be for the rest of the season. You know, just, you know, if you need a player, there's a pool of players here who aren't going to play in the Premier League, aren't going to maybe play even in the Championship. You can take them down for the ability to get some football in the lower leagues and you can play pay a nominal fee because that's what I hate to see these players who aren't even involved in the Premier League squads over the next couple of days their club saying oh you want to take them alone it's 4 million quid for the rest of the season or it's 2 million quid for the rest of the season that's crazy I'd see a limit in squad sizes but that's probably a conversation from yeah, the yeah. it is, it we, is, we, it can is. See, we can see uh, Ryan Reynolds cheering on Hakim Ziyech scoring the win of the Red <laughs> <laughs> they could afford it okay guys uh, appreciate you being with me Alison Rudd uh, Tom Roddy and Gregor Robertson and to all of you for listening remember you can subscribe to the game online it's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game make sure you pick yourself up a paper or at least hit the notification button you will not miss an episode we'll be back with you on Thursday see you then helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.